0: Welcome to the second half of a story called The Barred Iron Gate. If you haven't already heard part one, then proceed no further. You're in the wrong place. Part one is available on all the usual podcast apps, and you'll need to hear it first, or things will make even less sense than ever. But if you're here for part two, my name is Elgin Barrett, and this is the concluding part of The Barred Iron Gate. I left Cambridge the following day, with as many of my possessions as I could carry, and went to my parents' home, deep in the Warwickshire countryside. My father raised an eyebrow at my unexpectedly early return, but my presence did little to ruffle their rigid routine. I couldn't have been easy to live with, I was distant, irascible, distracted, but they knew how hard I'd been working, and so they put it down to that. The ill-temper of my outward demeanour, though, hardly even hinted at the profound turmoil within. I was so beset by fears of so many different kinds, so completely out of control of my mental processes, that for a while I thought I would break down entirely. Once again, I found myself turning recent events over and over in my mind, trying to make sense of what had happened. I tried to convince myself that the face I had seen at the pub window was a flashback, "'I'd read about the after-effects of LSD "'and knew that hallucinations and panic attacks "'could recur for quite some time. "'It would seem a reasonable explanation. "'But then how could I account for the shattering of the glass? "'A coincidence? "'No, there was more to it than that. "'There had to be, "'although I was not yet ready to come to terms "'with what that might imply. "'And then, of course, there was Kelvin, "'and with him came another long train of anxieties.' what was I thinking, believing I could trust him? I might have bought myself a little time, but nothing else, for he would surely come back for more money, more favours. And if he had discovered the truth about what happened, then what about the others? Would I be in hock to bullies and blackmailers for the rest of my days? But even that was nothing beside my anguish at the thought the body would be discovered. What if either Roy or Gregory were overcome by remorse and confessed to everything that had happened? What if they gave the names of who was there, who had colluded in their crime? For the best part of a month, I lived in terror of the doorbell. I lay awake at night, constructing narratives for the police. I tried to imagine myself furiously denying any knowledge or involvement. Then I would change tack and come up with alibis or extenuating circumstances – Sometimes I would picture myself cringing through a hostile interrogation, begging for a plea bargain. Other times I would tearfully own up to it all and simply throw myself on the mercy of the court. It was exhausting. I knew I couldn't go on like this. I would have to get a grip. I needed a mask to present to the world, an expressionless face that would conceal my doubt, my fear, my guilt. I wouldn't do anything too dramatic. I would simply amplify a few traits of my character that were already well-established. I would become more reserved, more austere, more upright, more punctilious. In short, I would turn myself into a figure so conservative and conventional that the idea that I might hang out in shady pubs with a bunch of 'er ne'er-do-wells would seem ridiculous. And the thought that someone like me might ever have been off his head on LSD in the middle of a field it would be too absurd to even countenance. My exam results came through in early July. They were nothing special, but good enough for me to take up a post as a junior doctor at the Peterborough District Hospital. It was only 40 miles north of Cambridge, on the other side of the Fens, but it felt a world away. The centre was dominated by the bulk of its great, brooding medieval cathedral, but the rest of the city seemed to me a quiet, sober withdrawn sort of place, rather in keeping with the persona I had chosen to adopt. I rented a cheap room in a house in the west of the city, a short walk from the hospital. I got myself a severe haircut and bought a couple of tweed suits, of the kind favoured by elderly gentlemen. I turned down all invitations to socialise with my new colleagues with a prim and rather disapproving air. I threw myself into my work with a fanatical and selfless dedication, I got a certain satisfaction from my aloofness, my severity, my irreproachable professionalism. But then, one afternoon, the mask slipped. As part of our training, we were expected to gain some practical experience of as many different medical disciplines as possible. And after I'd been there a few weeks, I had my first taste of the one we all dreaded – pathology. The senior pathologist was a Welshman called Dr Jenkins – who had a bright and breezy air about him, as people in a grim line of work often do. ''They brought this one in from the fens,'' he was saying, as he led a group of us down to the mortuary in the basement of the hospital. ''What?'' ''I felt my blood run cold. A farmer found it at the bottom of a dike, way out in the fields somewhere. We've had so little rain these past few weeks, the water tables dropped quite a bit, apparently.'' he noticed something strange, went to investigate, and got a nasty shock, poor man. I could feel myself starting to panic. It it was her. It had to be her, didn't it? But we were already in the room. It was too late to make an excuse and back out. Right, said Dr Jenkins, bringing us to a halt in front of the autopsy table. The technician had already got the body laid out, covered in a regulation white sheet with a toe tag peeping out from the end. I attempted to conceal myself at the back of the group. I couldn't bring myself to look. I pressed my thumb to the pulse on my wrist and tried to stop my heart rate going berserk. Dr Jenkins started off by giving an overview of the injuries sustained, but I was concentrating so hard on keeping my emotions under control that I only half heard what was being said. "'So, let's try to draw some initial inferences, shall we?' he said after a few minutes." The contusion over the right eye, the result of a deliberate blow, would you say? Or is it more likely it was sustained as he tumbled into the dike? You mean, did he trip or or was he thumped? Said a young man at the front. He had a reputation as a bit of a joker and there was a general nervous titter. You could put it that way. Well, from the grazing around the wound, I would say he stumbled and hit his head on a rock or something, said a young woman doctor. An accident, then said Dr Jenkins, an accident pure and simple. I'm not convinced, said someone else. I mean, why all the bruises and grazes on his knees? I would say he must have fallen over a good few times before he ended up in the water. And uh, what about all the scratches on his arms and legs, said another voice. It looks like he's fought his way through a hedge or something. And it was then that it slowly started to dawn on me that they were talking about a he. "'And these rather deeper lacerations on the thighs and here on the inside of his arm?' asked Dr Jenkins. "'I breathed a sigh of relief. They were definitely talking about a man.' "'Could they have been caused by thorns or spikes or something?' said the young woman. "'Barbed wire, I would guess,' said someone else. "'Yes, I would guess that as well,' said Dr Jenkins. "'They're quite deep, you see. So would anyone like to speculate on his state of mind when he died?' "'Well, it sounds like he was running through the fields like a bloody madman,' said one of the young male doctors. "'You know, stumbling around, tripping over, hauling himself over barbed wire, dragging himself through hedges.' "'Yes, he must have been in quite a state,' said the young woman. "'I would say he was running away from something, or someone, perhaps.' "'I think that's a reasonable supposition,' said Dr Jenkins. "'But to get himself into this kind of state, I mean, well, he must have been in an absolute panic.' "'Yes, I imagine he was completely and utterly terrified. "'Poor chap!' "'I shuffled slightly to my right "'so I could see over my colleague's shoulders. "'I took a deep breath "'and looked at the autopsy table for the first time. "'And I couldn't help myself. "'I gasped and muttered, "'Oh, my God!' "'I stared for a moment "'just to make sure that my eyes weren't deceiving me, "'and then took a few steps back, "'turned away, "'and rested my forehead against a pillar.' ''Are you all right, Mayfield?'' called Dr Jenkins. The body on the slab was Roy. I was furious with myself for my loss of self-control, for drawing attention to myself in such a foolish manner. But my colleagues were almost solicitous and supportive. They seemed to rather like the fact I had shown a moment of weakness, a glimpse of my humanity... I was now constantly offered cups of tea and invited for cosy chats. I rebuffed them, of course, as coldly as I could manage. But it had served as a reminder of how thin the ice was on which I skated. Then, about a week after the incident in the mortuary, I bumped into Dr Jenkins in the corridor. "'Ah, Mayfield,' he said in his jaunty Welsh lilt. "'How about a drink after work?' It was the last thing I wanted— but it wouldn't do to refuse an invitation from someone so senior at the hospital. I liked that very much. I lied. This evening any good? The King's Arms at half six? I found him sitting outside in a little walled yard that served as a beer garden. There were only three other tables, and although it was a warm autumn evening, we had the place to ourselves. He nodded for me to take the seat opposite, and I saw that he had already set me up with a pint of bitter. So, Mayfield... ''You can probably guess what this is about,'' he said when I was settled. I felt my mouth go dry. A number of possibilities raced through my mind. Uh, ''No, sir,'' I said. ''Oh, come on, don't play dumb. The way you reacted in the morgue the other day.'' ''Oh, that,'' I said, taking a nervous gulp of my beer. ''I I don't suppose I'm the first?'' ''Oh, no, we've had far worse. fainting, vomiting, sobbing.'' I've known a couple of junior doctors who even burst out laughing. Takes different people different ways, I suppose. Yes. It's just that, well, I was surprised at you. He fumbled in his inside pocket for a moment and produced a pipe and a leather tobacco pouch. It's not as though I know you very well, but in the relatively brief time you've been with us, you've developed a a bit of a reputation as a, well, what shall I say... "'He held a pinch of tobacco between thumb and forefinger "'and stared into space for a moment. "'As a bit of a cold fish, I suggested. "'Oh, I wouldn't put it like that,' he laughed. "'Someone who keeps his feelings on a tight leash, more like.' "'He stuffed the tobacco into the bowl of his pipe and tamped it down. "'Only I checked afterwards, "'and it seemed that the fellow in question lived in Cambridge. "'And it occurred to me, well, it occurred to me, Mayfield, "'that you might have known him or something.' "'I swallowed hard.' Uh, "'Oh, no, I don't think so,' I said and attempted a grin. "'I've always kept myself to myself.' "'Yes, I dare say you have. "'Anyway, I don't want to stick my nose in, "'but I thought I'd mention it. "'There is a police investigation still going on, "'so if you do know anything, it's not too late to say.' "'He stared straight at me, "'as if he was challenging me to look away. "'Then he clamped the stem of his pipe between his teeth "'and patted his trouser pockets. "'Damn,' he said, "'I don't suppose you've got a light?' "'I don't smoke, I'm afraid, sir.' "'Quite right, too,' said Dr Jenkins. "'Filthy habit! "'But do excuse me while I pop inside and get some matches.' "'I wasn't enjoying this one little bit. "'When he'd gone into the pub, I took my pulse with my thumb "'and tried to compose myself, ordered myself to calm down. "'And then there was a rattle behind me. "'It came again, and I turned round to see what it was.' I hadn't noticed before, but set into the wall behind me, there was a gate. A barred iron gate. My heart gave a thump, as if someone had dumped a rock inside it. The knuckles of two incredibly pale hands were gripping the vertical bars. The gate rattled again, and as it did so, her features came slowly into focus. Her long black hair fell in matted tangles down either side of her emaciated face. Her cheekbones and chin were so prominent that they were almost raw white bone. Her black eyes, sunk deep in their sockets, seemed to flicker with a faint amber flame. Then she shook the gate once more, this time with such violence that little tumbles of dust and mortar fell from the lintel above. I didn't move. I didn't dare. I was transfixed. There was a hissing sound, like a long exhalation of breath. Then she wrenched the gate again, and one of the hinges groaned as if it was about to snap. I leapt to my feet, knocking my chair over with a clatter. She pulled her lips back in a wolf-like snarl and reached through the bars with her right arm, flailing the points of her nails towards me. I tried to stifle a yelp as she hurled the full force of her body against the gate. "'She did it again, and the whole wall seemed about to burst apart. "'I looked around me desperately for an escape route. "'I could do nothing else.' "'Is everything all right out there?' "'came Dr Jenkins' cheery voice from inside the pub. "'She glared at me with a look of savage hatred. "'Did I hear something?' said Dr Jenkins as he stepped through the door, "'adding, I bought a couple of halves to keep us topped up.' "'I turned to him, and I could tell immediately how shocked I must have looked.' because his whole expression changed are you all right mayfield he said hurrying over and setting the drinks down on the table only you look terrible i'm uh, i'm perfectly all right i stammered glancing back over my shoulder at the gate was it something i said asked dr jenkins i didn't mean to alarm you i checked over my shoulder once more but she had gone No, uh, no, just a touch of indigestion, I think, Uh, nothing that a, a pint of bitter won't put right. I righted my chair, sat down, and took a couple of long gulps. For a few moments I felt his eyes on me, watching me carefully. Then he struck a match, and with a flourish set it to his pipe. Perhaps you're a more sensitive soul than you seem at first, he said, and puffed energetically as his features disappeared in a wreath of pungent smoke. I'm not sure how I got through the next thirty minutes. I was in a daze, virtually incapable of speech. If Dr Jenkins had thought me a little strange at the start, heaven knows what impression he left with. But I was desperate to get away, desperate to give myself some time to think, because I was now stone-cold certain that what I had seen had been no flashback. How could that young woman have just emerged like that from my subconscious, so unexpectedly, in such fine detail, so real, so tangibly, physically present? No, she hadn't emanated from my own mind, I was sure of it. I also knew, in my bones, that whatever I had seen, Roy had seen too. She was the reason he had fled across the fields in such abject terror. Yes, she was the one who had hunted him to his death. The rest of the week passed without incident and on Saturday I had a day off which I had set aside for domestic chores. I was leaving the house mid-morning with a bag of laundry for the service wash when I saw a large long-haired man in a tatty denim jacket leaning against the lamppost outside. He looked up as I came down the front path. It was Kelvin. I've got nothing to say to you I told him, unless you've come to repay the loan I made, of course. Ah, he said, we need to talk about that. I brushed past him. And if you think you can get so much as one more penny out of me, I called over my shoulder, then think again. I'm not afraid of you. No, it's not that either. I started to march down the road as fast as I could, the bag of washing clasped in both arms, Kelvin following with his long, loping stride. "'And if you've come to tell me about Roy,' I said, "'you can save your breath. I know about Roy.' "'What?' he said. "'I could tell that took the wind out of his sails. "'How do you know about Roy?' "'It doesn't matter. "'Then I guess you know about Gregory, too.' "'That stopped me in my tracks. "'I'm sorry?' "'Gregory, you heard what happened?' "'I wasn't quite sure how to respond. "'Was he with Roy when he... uh, "'No, of course not. "'Roy disappeared back in August. "'You said you knew.' And Gregory? It was just last week. I set my laundry bag down on the wall of a front garden. Go on, perhaps you'd better tell me. You remember that wee car he drove? The spider, the Alfa Romeo? Aye, I got hit by a train on the main line. He was inside, that girl of his as well. Neither of them stood a chance. My God, what the hell were they doing? They wrote it up in the local paper, he said reaching for the back pocket of his jeans and bringing out a folded copy of the Cambridge Evening News. I scanned the article. It seemed that the car had crashed through a wire fence and rolled down an embankment into the path of an oncoming train. One sentence in particular caught my eye. According to an eyewitness, the car was reversing at high speed when the driver appeared to lose control. I looked up at Kelvin. It says here he was reversing. Aye. Why on earth would anyone be reversing at such high speed they do that? It was getting dark, I think. He'd taken a wrong turning up a dead-end street. Then why not do a U-turn? I don't know. Perhaps he didn't have time. Perhaps he panicked. An awful thought was already starting to take shape in my mind. Any idea where it happened, I asked. Yeah, I know the place. It's a road that leads to a builder's yard, no doubt, with a barred iron gate at the end of it, I muttered half to myself. What did you say? said Kelvin. It doesn't matter. What did you say about a gate? I said I wouldn't be surprised if there was a barred iron gate at the end of it. Shit, he said. So you've seen her too? I had the sense that a piece of the puzzle might be falling into place. So they told you what happened? Roy and Gregory, I mean. I'm sorry. They told you what happened that night last summer. They must have. No, I've never spoke to them since then. Oh, come on. Honest to God, not a word. Then how do you know about the gate? Because I've seen it. The barred iron gate. What do you mean you've seen it? Well, not exactly seen it. I've dreamt about it. With her, that woman, that barmaid from the pub with her staring through it, staring as though she hates me, as though she means to do me harm. Come off it, you're joking. I promise you I'm not. Kelvin and I stood there in silence for a moment, both of us unsure what to say next. Have you seen her too? He said at last. Yes, I said, and not just in my dreams. It was on Tuesday of the following week, that I finished the early morning rounds of the wards to find a couple of police officers waiting for me, a young woman constable and a rather older sergeant. My heart started to thump. Was this it? Had they found the body? Was this the moment I had been braced for? My mind scrambled to recall the strategies I had rehearsed. As a first line of defence, I would go for an outright denial of all knowledge of it, but I would need to tread carefully. ''Is there somewhere quiet we could talk?'' asked the woman. I led them into an unused office and sat behind the desk, summoning up my iciest, my most thoroughly professional demeanour. ''How can I help you?'' I said. ''It concerns a young man called Kelvin Lorimer,'' said the sergeant. ''Do you know him?'' That caught me by surprise. ''Kelvin? What was their interest in him?'' "'I attempted to keep my face expressionless "'as I did a rapid recalculation of how much I could give away. "'Kelvin Lorimer, yes. "'Well, uh, he's a friend of mine, I suppose you could say.' "'The senior officer looked up and raised an eyebrow. "'A friend?' said the woman. "'Yes, uh, from my student days. "'We used to play pool together from time to time uh, in the pub. "'And uh, have you seen him recently?' "'This was even trickier to answer.' I took off my spectacles and polished them. Was there any point in concealing our meeting? I decided there wasn't. Yes, I saw him on Saturday. The woman scribbled something in her notebook. Then they both looked at me and waited. Uh, it wasn't planned. I um, bumped into him in the street. And uh, what was he doing in Peterborough? Do you know? I, uh, I think he was here for work. He's a painter and decorator. I believe he works all over the place and he wasn't doing any work for you. Uh, No, only we found your address in the pocket of his jacket, so we took it that he might have been to see you recently. Look, I said, can you tell me what this is about? Kelvin Lorimer uh, was arrested on Saturday evening, said the sergeant. It was just a driving offence, but he became aggressive, and the officers decided to take him into custody.' When they got him in the cell, continued the woman, he suffered what the duty officer describes as a psychotic incident. He started screaming, cowering in the corner, banging his head against the wall, thrashing around. He was a big man, as you know, Dr Mayfield, and the duty officer went off to get assistance. May I ask, I said, did the cell have a barred door? A door consisting of vertical bars? The two officers looked at each other quizzically. ''Well, it would have been one of our holding cells, I imagine,'' said the woman. The other officer nodded at her. ''So I suppose the answer is yes.'' ''Why do you want to know?'' said the sergeant. ''I just wanted to picture it in my mind,'' I said with a grim satisfaction. ''But I'm sorry to interrupt. Please carry on.'' ''Well,'' the sergeant continued, ''by the time the officer returned with some support, they found that Mr Lorimer had somehow managed to fashion a makeshift rope.'' And had hung himself from the bars of the window. Good God! I said, and as it seems you were one of the last people to see him alive, we just wondered whether you might be able to shed any light on why he may have done it. I took off my spectacles again and allowed the world around me to blur for a moment. Doctor Mayfield," said the sergeant, I- "I'm afraid I can't." I said quietly. I didn't know him particularly well. And he didn't seem disturbed when you saw him on Saturday? No, I can't say that he did. The two officers looked at each other again. Well, if anything else occurs to you, said the sergeant, perhaps you'll give us a call. And he left his card on the desk in front of me. So, Roy, Gregory, and now Kelvin. Each of them, it seemed, had died in a state of utter abject terror. It would be my turn next. How could it possibly be otherwise? She had come for me twice already. There was no doubt she would come again. So what was I to do? Could she somehow be appeased? Could I make redress for what had happened? At the very least, I would seek her out before she sought me again. I would find out what really lay at the bottom of the dike. The worst thing I told myself— would be to simply sit and wait. And so, at the end of my shift that afternoon, I went straight from the hospital to the car rental place in town. I hired a little Morris Mini and headed east on the main road to Whittlesey, and then turned south into the fens towards Cambridge. I drove around haphazardly at first, hoping I would come across something that would jog my memory. But it was hopeless. The landscape was too flat its features too few and far between, and after all, what was I looking for? A ring of beech trees 50 yards from a drainage dyke It could be anywhere. The best I could say was that I would know it when I saw it. After a few hours of fruitless searching, I decided I would need to be more methodical, and so in my break the next day, I popped out to WH Smith and bought an ordnance survey map. I identified the area that was roughly a 45-minute drive from Cambridge and resolved to go through it, square by square, drawing a line through each one as I eliminated it. For the next three evenings, I drove up and down the tracks and lanes of the area, working my way systematically from east to west. It was getting dark on the Friday evening. The rain had started to sweep in and I was about to abandon my quest for the day when I brought the car to a halt on a bare patch of land at the end of a long, bumpy track. I let the windscreen wipers beat back and forth for a few moments and peered out across the fields. I had a feeling. Something told me this was the place. I switched the engine off, got out of the car and pulled the lapels of my jacket tight together against the rain. Just as I remembered from the previous summer, there was no sign of habitation or life in any direction. And there, a little way off to my left, were some beech trees on a very slight rise in the ground. I strode over. The wind was blowing in sharp gusts now, sending sheets of rain crackling through the leaves. This had to be the spot. I took my spectacles off and wiped the raindrops away, then replaced them and scanned the land to the east. The farmer had harvested the crops, and so the fields looked different. But about 50 yards away... I could definitely see the outline of the dike. I walked over, stood at the top of the bank and peered down. The rain stippled the surface of the black water, but it was just as blank and unrevealing as it had been before. It wasn't going to give up its secrets easily. There was nothing else for it. I would need to get my hands dirty. Stupidly, I hadn't prepared for this moment... I was still in the tweed suit I'd worn for my hospital rounds that morning. There was no point in ruining it. I returned to the car and checked again that there was no one around. Then I took it off, folded it, and left it along with my shoes and the rest of my clothing on the back seat. I walked back to the dike and steeled myself. Then I slithered down the muddy bank and dropped into the water. I gasped. It was horribly cold and came right up to my neck, I scrunched my toes in the silt at the bottom, tensed my muscles, closed my eyes and shuddered. When I opened them again, my whole body jolted in shock, for there, no more than a few feet from my face, was an iron gate, its bars rising vertically skywards from the surface of the water. I closed my eyes again and tossed my head from side to side as if it were a vision that I could somehow shake loose, but it was no use. I opened my eyes, but the gate remained, and I now realised that it was not the only one. To the left was another, and there was one to the right as well. I turned round slowly and found two more. I was enclosed on every side. And then came a clang from above. I looked up and saw that another gate had dropped in place above to form a roof. I wasn't just enclosed. I was caged. I didn't dare move. I simply waited. And then, to my left, there was a rattle and a throaty exhalation of breath. I swivelled my eyes, and there she was, her knuckles white where she gripped the iron bars, her beak of a face pushed up hard against them. There was another rattle and a moan and another face, the same face, appeared again this time directly in front of me, her top lip twitching, exposing her teeth in a vicious sneer. I risked the glance to the right, and sure enough, there she was again. She heaved on the bars, throwing her head back and letting out a long, ravening howl. I slowly turned my head and looked over my shoulder, and was confronted by two more, both crouching down and peering at me, with heads tilted to the side like great inquisitive birds of prey. They stared at me, her five faces. They stared with a steady, bitter malevolence in their flickering black eyes involuntarily I shivered, and the moment I did, "'a gnarled white hand shot towards me, "'its nails raking a long gash down the side of my face. "'I jerked and felt something sharp jab me in the back of the head. "'Another hand clawed the air to my left, "'its nails missing my eyeballs by a fraction.' There was a grunt of frustration. The bars were rattling continuously now and the hissing, moaning, groaning, sighing was rising in pitch on every side. What was I to do? What the hell was I to do? There was nowhere to go but down. That was the only thing for it. I would do what I had come to do. I would determine exactly what it was that lay at the bottom of the dike. I took a deep breath and plunged my head forward into the water. I pulled hard with my arms to propel myself downwards and then flailed blindly in front of me. My nails dug into some oozy mud. I scrabbled to gain purchase and then felt the fingers of my left hand knock against something hard and metallic. It had to be the gate.' I came up for air, and a hideous shrieking erupted. The bars of the gates clattered all around me with a new, savage intensity. I wiped the filthy water out of my eyes, and for a moment glimpsed the thrashing arms, the contorted faces, the blazing eyes, the bared teeth. I dived again, this time more certain of my goal, and my fingers wrapped around something that most certainly felt like an iron bar. I remained underwater, but righted myself, dug my toes into the mud, then braced and heaved at it as hard as I could. It was heavy, but I managed to budge it just a bit... I did the same again, but I was running out of breath. I came to the surface, filled my lungs, trying to close my mind to the writhing, raging, wild, hate-filled howling that rent the air. Then I plunged to the bottom again. I jerked the gate first one way, then the other, yanked it again and could feel something give. I tugged as hard as I could and sensed a large bubble rise through the water just next to me. Something was moving below. I rocked to the gate again and felt a weight lift. Something had been released. Somewhere in the blackness in front of me, a large object rose through the water. I came to the surface, opened my eyes and recoiled in horror. For there... Bobbing in the water, six inches from my nose, was a great tangle of matted black hair. It was the back of a human head. I cautiously advanced my hand through the water and felt something soft. A shoulder, perhaps. I pushed and the body spun round towards me. We were face to face. It was nothing like the pinched, drawn, hostile faces that had been screaming at me a few moments before. It was horribly bleached and bloated, grotesquely puffed and swollen. And yet it was undeniably her face. I was no longer really thinking. My actions now came automatically. I scrambled up the side of the dike and onto the bank, then leant forward, got my hands beneath her armpits and hauled her body out of the water. I laid her flat on her back, got to my feet and looked down. And only then did I realise that the cage had gone. The howling voices had fallen silent. There was nothing, apart from the rain whispering in the ploughed field, scudding across the surface of the water. The corpse let out a slight hiss. I guessed it was gas that had built up inside it. A fetid, slightly sulphurous smell hung in the air and then I thought I heard a choking noise come from its throat. I bent over and listened more intently. And suddenly, her whole upper body levered forward off the ground and surged towards me. Her head lolled forward and she spewed forth a quantity of foul-smelling fen water. She started to sink backwards and I put my arms around her to prevent her head smashing on the ground. A gurgling sound came from somewhere deep within her. Her body jerked and she retched some more. Kathy, I whispered. ''Are you... are you...?'' But I didn't finish the sentence. How could she possibly be? And then there was a sudden flash of light. I looked around, dazzled, trying to work out what was happening. The flash came again, and then a pair of powerful headlights flooded the whole area. I could just make out the shapes of two figures standing in front of a vehicle. A Land Rover, perhaps. As my eyes adapted, I began to see that the one on the left wore a wax jacket and a flat cap and appeared to be cradling a shotgun in his arms. Get another picture of the sick bastard, he said to the figure next to him. The camera flashed again. This will have to be seen to be believed. The eerie photograph of a naked man, with the decomposing body of a young woman in his arms, appeared in the local press a few days later. When word got out the young man was a Cambridge-educated hospital doctor, the national newspapers were quick to pick up on the scandal, despite the half-hearted efforts of the police to stop them. I was evil, warped, twisted, perverted, the doctor of depravity, the fiend of the Fens, The court of public opinion certainly showed me no mercy, as it rarely does. But what about the court of law? Well, you have heard my case for the defence. It is the truth, the whole truth and nothing but. And yet I know I will not be believed. The police are pressing ahead with a charge of murder. The evidence is circumstantial, but my lawyer advises that a plea of insanity is my best course of action. It would be a humiliation I could not bear." And so I must pursue another way. A doctor, even a junior one, even one on bail for murder, has access to a medicine cabinet like no one else. It is entirely within my power to ensure the case never comes to trial. And that, I am sad to say, is exactly what I intend to do. But if you have stayed with me until the bitter end, thank you for listening. The Lion Gate was written and performed by Elgin Barrett. Technical presentation was by Malcolm Blackmore and music by John Woz.